Hey, episode two of Reading Aloud is here. I'm your host, Nate Cordry. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have another jam-packed episode for you guys this week with all different kinds of content. We got some jokes, we got heavier stuff, we got a great interview, we got a, a little bit of everything. But before we get to the content, holy cow, uh, did we have a great opening week. Thank you so much for... Uh, being a part of it and, and downloading the first episode and, and subscribing on iTunes or listening on uh, SoundCloud, wherever you found the show, on the uh, Wolf Pop website, we had such a good response. It was it was a bit mind-blowing. So I, I hope to continue the role this week. Um, the first episode, I believe, got as high as 13th overall on the iTunes podcast rankings, which is, which is nuts. And first, yes, first in comedy podcasts. Number one, people. So thank you, truly. I, I really hope you enjoy the show and please continue to pass it along to your friends and family on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, but the first episode gets such a great response, so I'm really jazzed. So uh, let's continue it, yeah? Um, I want to make a lot more of these, so if the first week was any indication, I'll get what I want. Um, bit of housekeeping here. Did you get the book yet? Wolf and White Van, John Darneal, get it? read it, and be a part of this podcast. Yes, that's right. We have an interactive book club right here on Reading Aloud. So go get Wolf and White Van and then be included. You can email us your thoughts on the book um, at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com, readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. We tape the book club episode on Monday, November 24th. So make sure you get in any thoughts you have by the 23rd, okay? Okay. Also, uh, follow us on Twitter. We now have a, a Twitter handle, Reading Aloud Pod. And you can also follow me on Twitter um, for all the show updates. I'm at uh, I'm Nate Cordry. Um, plus, come to our live show. Yeah, we do this show live every month at the UCB Theater here in Los Angeles. And this month's show is Sunday, the 23rd of November. At 7.30 p.m. Uh, tickets are only five bucks, and we have great new readers this month for your listening and pleasure. So come on down and see us do the show live. Okay, enough of this. Let's get to some jokes. Yes? Yes. This is a piece read live by the great Jason Manzukis, who is a Upright Citizens Brigade regular. He's a hilarious actor and comedian, improviser, writer, raconteur. He co-hosts How Did This Get Made on Earwolf, which is Far and away, my favorite podcast. Uh, he's an old pal, and, and I was really lucky to have him come down to the UCB uh, this past summer and read this piece from the McSweeney's Internet Tendency website. It's fantastic. Here's Jason. This is called, Okay, Maybe Our Apartment Is Too Small for a Bald Eagle <laughs> by Tom O'Donnell. <laughs> Honey, please join me underneath the table. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of soul-searching lately, and I'm ready to admit that you're right. Maybe our apartment is too small for a bald eagle. Purchasing a pet eagle seemed like a great decision at the time I made it without telling you. I imagined our new eagle would be both companion and playmate, a loving friend to share our lives with, like a dog or a cat, but better because it can fly and scream. Plus. Having a bald eagle around is really patriotic. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I was a little jealous of all the attention the downstairs kid neighbor gets for owning a ferret. I don't get it. This kid buys a fancy rat and suddenly he's a goddamn local celebrity. Whatever. Anyway, this was my frame of mind when I brought home Tony, our eagle. What I hadn't counted on is that a 20-pound bird with an 8-foot wingspan needs a lot of room to fly. And defecate. And vomit, apparently. Room that our one-bedroom apartment simply doesn't have. Perhaps such close proximity wouldn't be such a problem if eagles were particularly affectionate pets, but I'm willing to concede that they're not. Eagles don't like getting held, or stroked, or petted. If you do succeed in wrestling an eagle into your lap, guess what? You've basically pointed its scrabbling, razor-sharp talons right at your thighs and groin. And God forbid you try and put a pair of sunglasses on an eagle because you think it'll be cute. It's like, goodbye, thumbs. Nope. All Tony, all, <clears throat> no, all Tony wants to do is sit on top of the fridge, 
scream and eat garbage. I don't know even why he eats the garbage if he's just gonna throw it up. And why does he only seem to throw up on our most valuable personal possessions? This is the kind of stuff they just don't tell you at the van where you buy eagles. Anyway, I don't mean to say that owning an eagle has been a totally negative experience. Our mouse problem definitely seems to have cleared up. However, mice droppings suddenly don't seem so bad when you see what a large carnivorous bird is capable of in the feces department. And I will always think back fondly on the dinner party that we hosted when Tony swooped around attacking everyone. You know I don't care much for your sister's boyfriend, so I was privately delighted to see him get scratched. Although I'm obviously very sorry about everyone else's injuries. It was certainly a proud moment for me when I successfully trained Tony to fly at my head whenever I enter a room. I would even go so far as to say, I love Tony in my own way, as much as you can love a creature that has bitten the tips of your thumbs off. In the end, however, the benefits of keeping an eagle in a small apartment have not outweighed the costs. <laughs> Giving up our bedroom to make space for Tony's giant laundry slash garbage nest was a bad idea. <laughs> I suspect it will smell like an eagle in there for quite some time. But we've had to spend nearly all of our time hiding under the kitchen table ever since Tony developed a taste for human blood. <laughs> and, and the monetary cost of eagle ownership has also been significant. Fresh fish, new furniture, and emergency room bills start to add up. Not to mention the $11,000 I paid for Tony himself. Oh, I see. You didn't realize how much eagles cost. Well, the reason they're so expensive is because, ah, I guess it's illegal to own one unless you're a zoo or something. Just by having Tony in our apartment, we are both technically guilty of a felony. Crazy, right? Please stop crying. <laughs> you should be happy, because I'm saying you were right all along. This place is too small for an eagle. Bare minimum, we would need a bigger apartment with a dedicated eagle room, which I really don't think we can afford right now. That's why I'd like you to take this broom and shoo Tony out into the hall. Shoo him, so we can end this finally and have our lives back. No, I'm not going to do it. Seriously, there's no way I'm getting up from under this table. That thing tried to kill me. That was the great Jason Manzoukas reading, Okay, Maybe Our Apartment is Too Small for a Bald Eagle by Tom O'Donnell. Uh, that, again, is from the McSweeney's Internet Tendency website. There's so much hilarious content on there, so check it out. We're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back. Listeners, help Reading Aloud stay free to download by completing this short, anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the, the sensibilities of our podcast, and it's listeners like you. So the listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And we promise not to share or sell your email addresses, and we won't send you your email unless you win. So please go to podsurvey.com slash Nate. That's podsurvey.com slash Nate. Take the survey. It takes barely five minutes, and you get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Now let's get back to the show. Kevin Awakuni is my guest. Uh, he works at Skylight Books, which is my favorite independent bookstore. Oh, thank you. In Los Angeles. It's in Los Feliz. It's on Vermont, just south of Franklin, right by the Los Feliz 3 and uh, Fred 62, the Dresden. Mm -hmm. What are the best sellers right now? Uh, what, is, what are flying off the shelves? You know what? Um, how, to talk to your gun, how to Talk to Your Cat About Gun Control is a zine that we sell that's been our number one best-selling thing for, I think, almost half a year. How to talk to your cat about, about gun control? Yeah, or gun safety. Gun safety, right? Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's like make sure your cat knows when the safety's on, and it's a full on like eight page. I walk past it every time I go into Skylight, and I've never picked it up. I oh, just... it's amazing! And they have a sequel called How to Talk to Your Cat About uh, Evolution. Also, just wow. as uh, tongue in cheek, that thing has been our number one seller forever. I How just, many do you sell like a week? How many? I don't know. I think it's in the thousands though. That that little zine. No kidding. Yeah. I think, and did it just? Was it just brought to you by someone in town, or did someone? Um, I don't know how it came about. We have a, a, um, a consignment person named Jen, and she gets a ton of just 
uh, inquiries all the time. And so I think that was one of the things she liked. And as soon as we put it out, people just snatched it up. It's like three bucks and people like, I'll right. buy a $3 thing. And it's a good present. Yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, the Goldfinch by uh, Donna Tartt sure, yeah. was a really big one. Have um, you read it? I haven't read that one yet. Yeah. Have you? I haven't, no. I, uh, I've heard mixed things. I've heard mixed things too. Overall, it's been like 90% positive. Um, there was so much hype about it. Yeah. Because of her and it's been years in the making. Right. I wonder if the actual writing is... Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I've heard about 90% good and then 10% like, ah, the ending was kind of... Mm. Right. So I don't know. Um, the one that I was really happy with that got into our bestseller was a book by uh, Adele Waldman, the the love affairs of Nathaniel P. The thing I was showing you, yes, yes, yeah, that was a book that I just was shelving. It came, it had come out on paperback maybe two months earlier, and I just was shelving some, and I started reading it, and right off the bat, I was like, oh, this is good. And then I read about mm, a quarter of it while at work, and then I took it home and I finished about two days, and I wrote up a little shelf talker about it, and then after that, our sales just like. It just kept get it just kept selling more and more, and uh, I mean that book is fantastic. Last time I was in the store, you pitched me on it, yeah, and I picked it up and I sat down in the little and I hung out with Franny, right? Um, the uh, the cat that mm-hmm. lives in the store, which I want who I want to talk about later, okay? Um, and I read the first like ten pages, and I'd already purchased a collection of short stories, so I was like, I don't, I can't buy right. More than one book at one time, I just get overwhelmed and mad at myself. But I read <laughs> ten pages and I really liked it. I was amazed at just how fast. And it's, I think the, I think the whole thing is told from the man's point of view, except she's a female writer, right? But her ability to dissect all of like the crazy neuroses that come into being when you're like in your mid twenties and you're dating a lot and yeah. you're just, you're just kind of an asshole. Like, yeah, like a lot of men in their mid twenties are. You just, you don't know, you don't know how to express yourself. You don't really have a fully formed ability to communicate effectively. So yeah. you just do weird shit. Yeah, I was one of those guys, sure. Yeah, me too, absolutely. So I read that and I was like, oh my God. And then I was like, wow, this is all from a woman. It was just, I mean. She's spot on. Yeah, I was really amazed. What is the title and the author again? It's- uh, the Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. And it's by uh, Adele Waldman. And uh, yeah, that that book, yeah, that book just kind of blew me away. Are there two sides to the... Amazon argument that Amazon, because all I've heard is that it's just ruining um, independent booksellers all across the country. People are buying all their books online. They're not supporting their local businesses. Mm -hmm. Is there another side to that argument that it's um, that Amazon is making reading more accessible and inspiring more people to read? And maybe they'll, because of they're reading more, they'll go to their bookseller. Or is it just that they're just destroying independent bookstores? Well, I mean, you can take the argument that Amazon kind of does promote reading, but they don't only promote reading. They promote like commerce. So um, I guess the thing I really feel about Amazon is like they invented an app to put on your phone maybe two years ago. And what you do is you would go into a store and you would see something you would like and you would touch the app and you would click on it and it would tell you instantly whether or not Amazon had it for cheaper or not. And then if it did, you could just buy it on your phone in the store and it's called showrooming. So what you so a lot of times people would come in and they'd be like, oh, Goldfinch, mm, $35, let me use my app. And then they would look at the app and they'd be like, oh, 18 bucks, bye. And then they would leave the store. And it's just, it's such an insidious way to use other people's businesses as a way to, um, I don't know, push their own products. Yeah, promote your own. And so wow. after that, I was just like, you know what, fuck them. I don't think I bought a thing from Amazon in two years. Um, and I just, that, but that's their business model. Their new phone that they, that they put out, the, uh, the Fire or whatever, yeah. they all come with that app. And so it's all built in. So it's instant. You just go in and wherever you want a showroom, you just, you're, you're able to. And that works not only for books, but dishwashers and tires and shit right. as well. Yeah, right? yeah. I think it's, it, it, I mean, I haven't looked at it uh, too closely, but from what I understand, it instantly compares their price to Amazon's price. And if their price is cheaper, of course people are going to just feel inclined to buy the thing. I mean, I don't think people think of the ramifications of like going into a business no. and then buying it somewhere else on their phone, you know, because we're, we're just a small business like everybody else, you yeah. know, and so when shit like that happens, you just, you can't really stop it because you can't really tell, but at the same time, you're just like, what the fuck? I mean, have just a little bit of respect. What makes a good 
Well, like, what makes a, a, a good independent bookstore? Um, I think the selection is one thing. Um, I really think the staff is like a huge component of it. Me too. Because if you can't find exactly what you're looking for, but friendly people are willing to come up and ask you in a very non-salesman way, like, do you need help? You know, and some people say yeah, and some people say no. But I feel like the staff really uh, creates the environment. If they're friendly and they're just, you know, they want to talk, and they can just kind of feel like what the customers like. They're in a hurry. Do they want to find something new? Yeah. And I find that combined with like our selection, because we don't just sell like popular books. We sell like. Uh, you know, small press stuff, a lot of university stuff, just like a, a, a wide range of things. So I feel like having an eclectic collection, having a really good staff, having really good readings, you know, having really good author events. Um, and then the location is fantastic, you know, as well. We get so much foot traffic as well. So like yeah. all of those, I think, have combined um, to help us stay around as long as we have. What's your favorite independent bookstore that you've ever been in that you've walked in and thought, holy cow, this um, is... Well, definitely. I think for me, um, it'd have to be Powell's. Yeah. That place is, I mean... Powell's is... I, I want to have the manager of Powell's on uh, the podcast. And I've emailed <laughs> them and I'm trying to work it out. Uh-huh. That, uh, I mean, that place is mind-blowing. It's it's like walking into a city. Yeah. And you, they have maps. Yeah. And you can totally get lost. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's an entire city block. Yeah. It's, four floors. It's enormous. They um, have everything in that place. There's nothing you can't get there. No. It's, uh, so for me, that's like kind of the pinnacle of like what – I also haven't seen like, at, like all of the big ones. Like I haven't seen any of the ones in New York, so I couldn't really see – Strand. Say, right. Yeah. I haven't seen any of those yet. So um, – but um, yeah, for me, Powell's is just like – it's pretty goddamn mind-blowing. Are there any uh, like classic books that don't have the respect that you think is deserved? Like maybe like a book that – that maybe was popular at some point in time, but has sort of fallen out of favor and that you think deserves hmm, more a respect? A classic book. Maybe not a classic. I, I can maybe a classic, but something from the past that sort of demands more respect than it gets. You know what I love that people are really tripped out about? I love The Hobbit. Have you read The Hobbit recently? No. Have you ever read The Hobbit? No. That book is such a... I've read that book 12 times. Whoa. Yeah, I've read that book a lot. I remember reading it when I was in junior high, and then I read it in high school, and then I read it in college. Because you take the character Bilbo Baggins. He's, he starts off, and he's so small, and he's so shy. And then what J.R.R. Tolkien does is he slowly gives him obstacle after obstacle, and the obstacles escalate, and they get harder and harder. And you see him deal with that. And by the end, he's a completely changed person by the end of the journey. Yeah. And, but it's so subtle the way he does it because the – the dangers only increase slightly until they get to the dragon. Right. And then it's like, oh, my God. Um, but now I feel like with the Peter Jackson movie, I'm like, God, can I recommend The Hobbit to people? Because mm. it's so different from the movie. Um, Does that happen a lot where you feel like a book is spectacular, a movie comes out that ruins it, and you, f you can't recommend it anymore because of that movie? I think there was a- it's tarnished. I think The Cloud Atlas for a lot, did, the, by David Mitchell. Sure, yeah. I, yeah. Haven't, I haven't seen it, but people loved that book. Yeah, yeah. And just absolutely despised the movie. Right, right. So that, I think, is one where people like, Cloud Atlas, be like, mm, they just shake their head. And before yeah. that movie, like, people loved it. Right. Um, so for me, something like The Hobbit, I just, I think it's a fantastic novel. I just, it's super well done. The, um, the momentum that continues to go from chapter to chapter, I think is fantastic. And I don't know, if people haven't read it, they really should, because it's a fantastic novel. Do you think... Uh are there any books that have come out in the last two or three years that will be remembered like for decades? Like, is, has there been this a book that's come out? And maybe it's getting the press now that it deserves, but in the last four or five years, can you think of any author or any book that's come out that you've th thought, okay, this one is, this is part of the like American sort of canon now? Oh, interesting. You know, it's so hard to predict because tastes, tastes are always changing. Um, like, I remember when that heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius by Dave Eggers came out. Yeah. And it was such a big, it was such a big deal for such a long time. And now, I mean, it's not really talked about. Um, so it's hard to say, like, what is going to stand the test of time as far as, like, what's going to be accessible to everybody at all stages 
of culture because when when like the Dave Eggers book came out, like there's no way you could have predicted the way social media and the ability to have personal expression like would change a lot of um, general society. You yeah. know, so I mean, I, I think the thing that I, I mean, I'd just be hazarding a guess, and I have no idea, but I think the goldfinch might be around for that. Might be something that might still come up within the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think people will talk about David Foster Wallace in 25 years? Yeah, for sure. That okay. guy's a genius. I mean, yeah. his writing his writing will stand the test of time. I don't know where and like the hierarchy, but I mean, for sure, his stuff is phenomenal. Maybe Jonathan Franzen. I mean, I, I know people don't talk about the corrections that much anymore, but that book is- So good. That book is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, that's another phenomenal book that I feel like people, when they ask for recommendations, you, you show it to them, they're like, nah. And he just, I don't know, this is, you know, even the last one, Freedom, I thought was. I loved, I almost liked Freedom more. Yeah, you know, in a way I, I did I'm too. A, yeah. Because the the, uh, the family dynamic, I remember in uh, the corrections, I was just like, especially, I think it was the older brother wanted to go visit the mom. Yes. And then the wife didn't. Yeah. And then just the passive aggressive nature of their fight and they continually escalating oh, yeah. till he's drunkenly chopping the hedges in the morning <laughs> right. and he cuts his hand yeah. really bad. Yeah. And then the wife's just like, oh, kids, mom, daddy's just feeling sick. Yeah. Let's leave him alone. Yeah. I mean, it's a dark, depressing movie, but uh, a book, but yeah. the minutia of just like how difficult it is to be in a family, which anyone in the world <laughs> yes. can relate to. Yeah. is just so spectacular. And then, yeah. And I thought it just, it went there so fast sometimes. And I just thought freedom, um, it's just a little lighter. And, it is. It is. And it, I mean, and that was the first, because the corrections, I think, came a lot from his own family and his yeah. own family dynamics. And I guess freedom was like, just made a and whole And his clock. dad having dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah, I think and, so. And then the mom yeah. having to deal with a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and then to top that, like the Oprah book club thing that came on top of that, it's just yeah. <laughs> like a total shitstorm for him. He's great. Yeah. He's, he's crazy. So, I love yeah, it. yeah. And so- Does um, he have something new coming out to you know? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, he's had a, he's had a book of essays that came out. Um, right. Or it, it wasn't even, I think it was like a translated thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't new work from him. Yeah. Um, I think freedom was the last thing that I can recall. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm four hoping. years ago. Yeah. Um, he's the best. I he's, like him a lot. Yeah. He's fantastic. Um, I don't know. It's so hard to say. Like even like Joshua Ferris. Have you read his stuff? Yeah. Like then we came to the end. Yeah. I thought that That's was the one that I that I read. Yeah. That, I thought that was really really good. It was fun. It was a really great read. Yeah. And just the fact that he used the wee voice, and then right in the middle of that novel, he puts in like this completely short, uh, like the the the, the office manager. It's oh a, yeah 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 yeah. Isn't yeah. it? It's if you if you if you took that out of that book, it's an entire short story because it has a beginning, middle, and end. Right. And then he ties it right back. Right. And I just, I've never seen anything like that. And I was like, man, that was really, really good. Yeah. Um, I hope something like that lasts because that's that's a, re- a really unique voice. And I think like it captures like a really, um, I don't know if it captures a unique time, but I just I, I just feel like that kind of energy is something that I feel like I'm, I'm hoping that people will be like, oh, that was really yeah. like 20 years from now when we're all living with robots. <laughs> that People will be like, there was a time when we all worked in the office and the robots didn't do anything. It's funny that you mentioned heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius because that is why I, I this is why that, that that book is why this podcast is happened. Oh, it's no because kidding. I read that book. Uh-huh. I was temping in New York City for this ad agency and I was reading that book at lunch and I just was so enamored with this book. It was the first time that I picked up a book and it sort of changed my perspective hmm. on what it meant to be a reader. Interesting. And cuz he, he was doing things that I'd never seen before, like in the, you know, like in the middle of it, maybe it's in the first few pages where it's just like, it's a thing, it's an icon of a stapler and it says, this is a picture of a stapler. (laughs) And just was completely random, like an entire page was just wasted with a little thing of a stapler. It's like, what the fuck is, what is going on? And then how emotional it gets and how deep it gets with his relationship with his, with his brother who uh, ends up taking care of. Right. There's a passage in that book that. Uh, I wanted to turn into a monologue because I was so moved by it. It was when uh-huh. he goes back to the church where his mother was buried, uh-huh. and um, he reminisces about what he thought the funeral was going to be like. It was going to be this big, beautiful, glorious thing, and, uh-huh. and it was going to be fitting and just. And it was actually really depressing. There was nobody there. No one showed up, and it just like, devastated him. Oh. And I read that passage, and it just moved me in a way that I'd never been moved by a book before. And I was like, uh-huh. I need to read this out loud. I need to, I need, 
I need someone to hear this because this is like so compelling. Uh-huh. And I started doing this show live. The, I just rented a theater in Burbank and got my friends together to like read excerpts from books. Uh-huh. And that was the one I read. Uh-huh. And it's funny that you mentioned it today because I drive to the church. It's only a few minutes from the beach, straight through the heart of town, past the library and the barber shop. This church is so small. I look out over the pews, and the church is tiny. The pews are so low, and there are so few rows. It was never so small before. I walk into the church's main chamber up the center aisle on the red carpet. I walk to the first pew, where I had sat the last time I was here. I had been in the front row and had been turning around beforehand, waving to a few people as they came in. I was sitting with Toph and Kirsten and Bill and Beth. We were huddled together in the pew on its near end. We had been to the church, but had never sat so close to the stage before. My mother sat us in the middle, or the back, and we were thankful because then the priest and his coterie could not tell if we knew the words we were supposed to know. I sat in the pew, holding Kirsten's hand, playing with Toves, dizzy, wearing my blue blazer, waiting for the service. All the glory. I had known for months what it would be like, had pictured it, the whole thing. There would be light. It would be day. There would be light through the high stained glass windows, prismatic. No, the light would be direct. Direct, clear, wide, golden. The crowd would be endless. The church full like it is at Christmas. At Easter, the the side aisles overflowing, the entire town there almost. All the relatives, her brother and sisters from out east, the cousins, my father's enormous extended family from California, all her former students, all the other teachers, all my friends, Bills, Beths, high school, grade school, college, TOEFs, their parents, the grocers, the doctors, nurses, strangers, admirers, everyone in their overcoats. Their dark, deep colors, silent and reverent. The back entry area crammed, overflowing. Oh, but others would be outside the church. A hundred on the steps, in the courtyard, wrapped around the building, down the street. A thousand or so, waiting just to to know that they were there. To validate, to help prove. In the church The service would start, but priest after priest would stand and begin to speak, but then would be overcome and would have to give up, would would shuffle to their red velvet chairs, yield the podium to the next, and and then would weep, shaking their faces, resting in their long-fingered hands. We would be there in the first pew, the beautiful and tragic Eggers children, soaked in blood, stoic, as a hundred or more would stand before us and speak of her, all the gifts she granted them and her life would be recounted in in glorious detail every moment, all the holding together and sacrificing and, and then the ceiling would go, the barrel vaulting would rise and the entire roof would quietly unhinge itself and lift up, would rise straight up and disappear and the church's huge wooden cross supports would fly up and away and would get so small, tiny in the rich blue sky, and would become birds. The church would double in size, would triple, the space expanding, suddenly taking in all those waiting outside, and then become bigger, would take in everyone she'd ever known, millions, all with their hearts in their two hands, offering them to her. The angels would come, Thousands, slender, winged and bird-boned, descending and circling, all with sharp, small eyes, and they would be laughing, full of mirth. Why not? This was happy. Happy. My mother would be there. No coffin, no remains, but her. Ephemeral, huge, her head as big as the nave, the, the angels moving around her, tiny by comparison, her hair, her original hair, feathered up huge the way she liked it before she lost it, replaced by the darker, tighter curls, and her squinty smile, all the crinkles at the corners of her eyes, smiling to see us all there, knowing all those she had touched were there, that they were giving back, giving at least this much back. Ah, oh, such a celebration. And we and she would all be so happy not to see her as some embalmed thing, some rubbery and gruesome thing, but instead, 
as this wonderfully glowing, bright visage above us all. And she would be first smiling, the, the big closed mouth smile she smiles, then that big small toothed smile she smiles, then, then she would be laughing. Someone would say something funny and she would laugh that way she laughed silently, crazily, out of breath. It was so funny, whatever someone said. Who said that funny thing? Who? Maybe I said it. Maybe I said it. Maybe I said it and it made her laugh like sometimes we could really bust her up so that it was just killing her, this laughing, her eyes struggling to stay open to see because when she laughed, my mom almost immediately teared up and had to wipe her eyes, the tears or the side of her forefinger. Oh, that's when you knew you, you really said something funny when she would be crying, wiping her eyes. You had her then. You really wanted that. There was no greater thing. No achievement so great, so stirring. You tried to play a casual, deadpan, but you were so proud and thrilled watching her. You wanted her first to say, stop, stop, because you were so funny, but you would continue because you wanted her to laugh more, to really laugh until she would have to rest, to, to half collapse on the kitchen counter while you were sitting at the table after school. Oh, you're awful, she would say. Stop. Oh, but to see her laugh, you would say anything. And she so loved a good laugh at someone's expense. Bill's, Beth's, yours, her own. And at that moment, everything would be wiped away. All the times you feared her or wanted to run away or, or wondered how she lived with him, protected him. You wanted only her laughing like she did when she was on the phone with her friends. Yes! She would shriek, yes, exactly. Then afterwards, she would sigh, breathing heavily and say, oh, that's funny. God, that's funny. That's what she would say. And she would say something like that as the church walls disappeared and the nave evaporated and the angels flew faster, elliptically around her. And we would all be feeling vibrations from it all. Or they were all inside us too moving elliptically or through our blood, and there would be music. ELO, maybe? Xanadu, maybe? Did she really like it or just tolerate it for our sake? She would hum along a little, move her fingers back and forth a bit, and, oh, we would have such a time. And then she would have to go. She would have to leave, but not before saying goodbye. See you, she would say, raising the last part, a, a high note, faux formality, and then turning from us to touch the small cheek of that golden, broken, and crucified Jesus suspended in the air. The nave gone, but it's still floating. The golden thing, she would touch it gently with the back of her tanned, ringed hand, that lucky bastard, and then she would be gone. And we would all collapse right there in the open church and sleep for weeks and weeks dreaming of her. Uh, it would be something, something fitting, proportionate, appropriate, gorgeous, and lasting. I stand up and walk to the podium. It was a hundred steps that day, but now only two. Then I had a piece of paper. I had brought it, the one from under the couch. I had tried to recopy it onto a better sheet of paper then ran out of time. And I put the piece of paper on the podium and looked up. I stand up and walk to the podium. It was a hundred steps that day, but now only two. Then I had a piece of paper. I had brought it, the one from under the couch. I had tried to recopy it onto a better sheet of paper then ran out of time. And I put the piece of paper on the podium and looked up and over the... Where were the people? It was not a crowd. It was a scattered thing. A few here, a few there. Everyone loved her. Where were they? Everyone, of course, knew and loved my mother. Everyone. But where were they? This could not be. Would not do a life and then this? This 40 people? Where's the woman who cut her hair? Laura, where was she? Is she here? All the volleyball women, did they come? I mean, there's one candy, but where is her family? Where are her sisters? I mean, there's only Uncle Dan who has come, he says, to represent the family and the cousins, her friends. There are some here, but my God, there were so many more. 
This is the crowd that was at my father's. It should not be the same crowd. The same number. They were not the same. These two lives. Where are the people from town? Where are the parents of her former students? Where are my friends? Where are the world's people to honor her passing? Was it too gruesome? Are we too vulgar? What is happening? All she put in. All she gave for you people. She gave everything for you people in this... She fought for so long for all you people. She fought every day. She fought everything, fought for every breath until the last, sucking everything she could out of the air in that brown living room, gasped again, again. It was unbelievable. Yes, she grabbed at the air, grabbed for us and grabbed for you. And where are you? Where are you fucking assholes? Because from there, he really launched into McSweeney's. Yes. Because after the, the success of that, because I remember when McSweeney's first started coming out, uh, for those who are not familiar with McSweeney's, it's like a literary journal that's also a publishing house. But it started off as just like, I remember when we would get them in, it, it looked it looked kind of like a really boring telephone book. It was all white. It was super thick. And it wasn't like any magazine or literary journal that I'd seen before. And then what I started noticing is when you looked in the copyright notes and all that stuff, he would put in all these jokes, like this is right. the, like this is the copyright page. Right, right, He's right. to not eat it. Or right, whatever. right, right. right. I was like, wow. And then I remember reading the pieces, and I just, I, I, it just felt like he was giving you like a literary hug, just like, come on yeah. in, let's 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 bear hug it out. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna infuse you with a lot of warmth and craziness and weirdness. And from there, it just kind of took off and became its own thing. Now he has the Believer and Walfin and uh, God, uh, Lucky Peach. Internet uh, Tendency, yeah, which is one all, of my favorite yeah, websites. Yeah, absolutely, and all that. And it all started, and it's just, I remember it all started from that book, and I was just like, yeah. wow, it's kind of crazy how much of a launching point. Because, I mean, I really feel like it's kind of a, a literary movement that he started, just the I warmth agree. and... Um, it's not an inclusive. It's like a, it's yeah. like a shared thing. It's like we're not better than you or smarter than you or highfalutin. Like let's all yeah, let's make jokes. Let's, yeah, yeah, and then let's have fun. But let's try and maybe make something important with it. And it's just I don't know. It, it yeah, I feel like that book kind of doesn't get as much credit as it should because it really did start a whole movement. Yeah, and all the stuff that it, all the work that he's done with nonprofits with kids. Absolutely, and uh, I think it's in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, in New York. He's done all this good work with the money he sort of generated first from mm -hmm. heartbreaking work, Staggering Genius. Yeah. And he's written a lot of books since then, and some of them were great, and some of them I haven't been so much into. Right. But um, Hologram for the King, I, I loved. I really liked that. I haven't had a chance to read that one yet. It's I heard great. It. Yeah, and then even the one before, uh, Zaytun. Yeah, I didn't. That's about. Uh, um, uh, I think it's, it's set in, is that the one in New, New Orleans? Orleans? Yeah, yeah, I think it's after Katrina. Right. That yeah. one I think won the national. I think it won a major award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and what is the what? Which is sort of about the Lost Boys, which I really yeah. liked as well. Right. Um, I just, yeah. I, he's important. He's yeah. He's a really sort of important figure, and 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 I feel like he just doesn't get. I mean, maybe he, maybe he chooses not to because he, he doesn't do a lot of publicity. He doesn't do a lot of touring. You know, he just kind of puts it out, and then he goes on his book tours, and then he goes back to you know running his empire. The story is the content, not. His personality, yeah, absolutely, but and that's I, him. I yeah, think. yeah, but I think in the first, maybe in the beginning, I think like his personality was really a lot of it. Now that he, he's his empire or McSweeney's is just so big now, I, I feel like he just kind of recedes and just kind of has his fingerprints on it. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I I don't know. I, I'd be very curious to see if that kind of book um, will be around like in twenty years. Like if that'll be like a thing people will recommend to read in high school. Yeah, you know that exactly. kind of you know I like in so. your AP English. Yeah, exactly. Senior year. Yeah, that'd be cool. Instead I'd... of reading the Chocolate War, you <laughs> read you know. A Chocolate War is good too. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. Kevin, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. It. Sure. Let's move on to the uh, final piece of content for the show, shall we? My brother Rob, uh, who you know, I'm sure, Rob Cordry. Uh, came down to the UCB theater and read, in my opinion, the single greatest comedy essay from the McSweeney's Internet Tendency website. It was written, oh man, I think, I want to say like in 2006, 2006 or 2007, and I remember getting it emailed to me and thinking, what is this, and what is this website, and I need to read more of this stuff. It was just so funny. It's called 
It's Decorative Gourd Season, Motherfuckers, by Colin Nissan or Neeson. Um, and it's about a guy who's really jazzed about the fall and about his gourds. And Rob just read it spectacularly. This was about a month ago at the UCB. And uh, at the live show, I interview my guests for two or three minutes, and then they read their piece. So I've included that brief interview section um, here, because it's fun to have two brothers talk to each other in front of 100 people. Uh, here it is. Uh, my final guest is related to me. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Cordry. <laughs> I remember uh, <clears throat> Rob moved to New York when I, I don't know, I forget how old I was, but New York to, to us, at least to me, to you it was amazing and exotic and you yeah. wanted to move. To me, New York was just the Bronx and you got fucking murdered there. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up in the suburbs of Boston and New York was terrifying. And every Sunday, we would have a family phone call where you would call, and all of us, my sister and I, mom and dad, would like get on the phone, like, how's... How's New York City? And the biggest, I think it was like two months into it, you had an audition for the Blue Man Group. Oh, that was the most terrifying audition of my life. Go I, I could not tell my friends fast enough. <laughs> my brother's gonna be a fucking Blue Man! <laughs> but you couldn't... You had to be, what was, what was the, oh, you had to be, you have to be, height. no, I was exactly right for it. You have to be like six feet tall, which right. I am, about, you know, 180, 190, which I am. That's not to brag. <laughs> <laughs> um, and preferably bald, right? You know, and, uh, and have some drumming experience, which I thought I did, right? right? But, um, I, I, there was this, there was the first time they were going to have a satellite Blue Man group in Boston, actually. Oh, okay. And yeah. so I auditioned and I got, I had, they were throwing marshmallows in my mouth. No shit. So, yeah, they painted me blue one day. They, Did it you have got, to chew the, uh, uh, the Captain Crunch? Did you have to do that? No, I never got to the Captain oh, Crunch stage. I didn't make it that far. I didn't make it that far. Sorry. It, um, it got down to callbacks and there were four of us called back out of, of like a hundred or two hundred, and that was like the closest I've ever gotten to a job. And like, and I was the one that was cut from the other three, basically because it got to the fact that like I can't drum for shit. <laughs> Those guys, like they should say, you also have to be a professional fucking. Drummer. <laughs> I can I can fake drum for about thirty seconds. Right. Like I can keep it timed. I can look. I can. Yeah. yeah! I can air drum. I can say that. I can hear drum. God, that's not required. No, 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 no. They don't need that in the group. No, no, no. They don't want that. They no. want real drumming. Yeah. And I'm good for about 30 seconds, then I'm like... I get drum epilepsy. <laughs> I uh, just want one other small story about our sister, who, um, I'm having Halloween with her, by the way. I'm going to Boston and giving out candy. No shit. Yeah. We're going to have our own personal conversation. Do <laughs> 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 story. That's just an aside. We'll talk about it yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> uh, our sister's not, um, in, uh, in, like, a creative field. She's not, uh, we were sort of... It's strange that our three kids, the black sheep, is the one that isn't in, uh, in the business. And she was not interested in going to see theater. But she's arguably the, the funnier of the Absolutely, the abso which is the ironic part about <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck her, man. Yeah. <laughs> Rob did a tour of, uh, of ha Hamlet and Twelfth Night? Yeah, Hamlet and Twelfth Night. Night. Also, not to brag. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sixty-minute versions, though, right? For community theater. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At many respectable junior college. <laughs> there is one stop in Massachusetts at the University uh, UMass uh, Dartmouth, right? 
that's about as great as good as it got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it was you know you had uh, you had to put out the set yourself and stuff right. and and um, do you remember the story? No. When you were oh, God. <laughs> oh yeah 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 I do finish it finish it and and uh, at the end and it was a a lot of hard work I thought and I thought like this show like I was making three hundred dollars a week and I would have we were on stage the whole time playing different parts and I was on stage at one point getting fed fake grapes and I would think and I would have a chance to like look out at the crowd and the lights and I'd be like this is it yeah <laughs> I fucking made it these UMass Dartmouthians <laughs> drinking this in <laughs> families here and I'm making 300 ones a week. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, just loving it. It was a good show. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we were cleaning up the stage. And I was like, you know, peacock feathers out. <laughs> and my sister was standing at the lip of the stage like, <laughs> blank faced. And I was like, hey. And she goes, I think she said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was boring. <laughs> Something like that? What was it? The exact words are, yeah, may I? Yes. I hate this. I hate this. <laughs> oh, yes. And you just reminded me that was during intermission. <laughs> because it wasn't, it was the present tense. And so, my second act wasn't yeah. yeah. as good as the first yeah. act. Because I was like, I have not made it. <laughs> Forsooth, we are met. <laughs> I hate this. Rob Corddry, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get my hands on some fucking gourds. <laughs> Arrange them in a horn-shaped basket on my dining room table. <laughs> that shit's gonna look so seasonal. <laughs> I'm about to have to the attic right now. Find that wicker fucker. <laughs> Dust it off. Jam it with an insanely ornate assortment of shellac vegetables. <laughs> when my guests come over, it's gonna be like, BLAMO! Check out my shellac decorative vegetables, asshole! <laughs> Guess what season it is? Fucking fall! <laughs> There's a nip in the air. My house is full of mutant fucking squash. <laughs> Even throw some multicolored leaves into the mix. All haphazard, like a crisp October breeze just blew through and fucked that shit up. <laughs> then I'm gonna get to work on making a beautiful fucking gourd necklace for myself. I'm gonna be like, are those gourds straining your neck? I'm just gonna thread another gourd onto my necklace without breaking their gaze. <laughs> Quietly reply, it's fall, fuckface. <laughs> you haven't ready to reap this freaky ass harvest? Or you're not. <laughs> Carving orange pumpkin sounds like a pretty fitting way to ring in the season. Do you know what else does? Performing an all-gourd reenactment of an episode of Different Strokes. <laughs> Specifically, the one when Arnold and Dudley experience a disturbing brush with sexual molestation. <laughs> oh, wow. This shit just got real. Felonies and gourds have one very important commonality. They're both extremely fucking real. <laughs> I'm sorry if that's upsetting to you. But I'm not doing you any favors by shielding you from this anymore. 
Next thing I'm going to do, carve one of the longer gourds into a perfect replica of the Mayflower. <laughs> a shout out to our pilgrim forefathers. <laughs> then I'm going to do lines of blow off its hull with a hooker. <laughs> Why? Because it's not summer. It's not winter, and it's not spring. Grab a calendar, put your fucking heads out of your asses. It's fall, fuckers. You ever been to an Italian deli with salamis hanging from their ceiling? Well, you're gonna fucking love my house. Just look where you're walking, or you'll get KO'd by a gauntlet of misshapen zucchini-descended bastards swinging from above. And when you do, you're gonna hear a very loud, very stereotypical Italian laugh coming from me. <laughs> Consider yourself warned! For now, all I plan to do is throw on a flannel shirt, some tattered overalls, and a floppy fucking hat. Stay in the middle of a cornfield for a few days. First crow that tries to land on me is gonna get his avian ass bitch slapped all the way back to summer. Welcome to autumn, fuckheads. That was Brother Rob reading It's Decorative Gourd Season, Motherfuckers by Colin Nissan. Again, another piece from the McSweeney's Internet Tendency website. That's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode two of Reading Aloud. A uh, couple of reminders. Follow us on Twitter, Reading Aloud Pod, or me. Uh, I'm Nate Cordry. There's a live show. The 23rd, Sunday, the 23rd of November, here in Los Angeles. If you live here in L.A. and want to come see the show live, come on down. Uh, it's five bucks. Five buck. Who can't spend five buck? And the next episode will be our very first book club episode. Paul Shear, April Richardson, John Rouse Bowie, myself, will sit around a table and talk for 45 minutes about Wolf in White Van by John Darnielle. So get it, read it, and send us your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. My theme music is Possessed by Paul James. Check out his stuff on iTunes and get it. It's so great, and he's fantastic. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.